lesser yin people want to, you know, make sure they have all the facts. They don't want to make mistakes because when they make a decision, they're going to stick to it. But lesser young people make decisions quickly and they're sure of themselves because they know that if it's not working out, they'll make another decision. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. It's the podcast for practitioners and students of acupuncture and East Asian medicine. I recently caught this little quote while listening to a podcast. Get this. If you care enough about your work that you're willing to be criticized for it, you've done a good day's work. I just love how that shines a light on the power of creation, of being willing to do the work that we deem important and not waste our valuable attention on the naysayers, to have the capacity for the importance of the work itself to power us, instead of leaning on the applause or approval of others. It brings to mind for me the question, can we stand in a place where we not only are not swayed by the boos, jeers, trolls, or other criticism of those who have a different point of view, but we can also not be taken in by the compliments, agreements, and praise of those who love our work. Is there a place you can find for yourself where doing the work you do is enough? To let it be a practice that every day unfolds new opportunities, to find out what you don't quite understand yet, and let that growing edge of inquiry be enough to feed your sense of stability and purpose. It's not easy. In fact, it's rarely taught. Usually we're taught that we're the ones doing the work, We're the ones that make the back pain go away or the baby spark into being or the digestive discomfort to disappear. It's easy to get attached to results, but those attachments can get in the way of us being of service to our patients when we seek to be right and seek to be noticed instead of seeking out the places we don't yet understand and grasp them with a welcoming sense of inquiry. I'm reminded that Tao Te Ching number 17 that end part, you might be familiar with it. When the work is done, not with fuss or boasting, ordinary people say, we did it ourselves. I suspect when healing happens without fanfare and applause, when people simply return to their natural state, then there's not much to say. They just get on with their lives. Perhaps they rave about your treatments, but maybe they just get on with the business of living. You know, it's not really about us. We accompany and assist, and yes, we do our work, but they are the ones that are doing the healing. Healing isn't as simple as turning a wrench. We're not machines, even though it's common to compare the body to one. And as to who or what is doing the healing, well, it does seem to touch a bit in on the mysterious workings of the world, doesn't it? Hey, I want to give you all a little heads up about an upcoming event It's going to be early in February of next year, Lhasa OMS and SOSOMA, the California State Oriental Medical Association, is putting together a weekend conference called Love Your Practice. It's an opportunity to get a look at a variety of models of practice, and more importantly, to meet other practitioners who are engaged in what I like to think of as the practice of practice. Come join us if you can, and if you can't, Geological will be there covering the event. So tune in that weekend for a number of almost live podcasts from Love Your Practice. 
You know, a lot of practitioners have issues with, air quotes here, business. We think it's something that we have to do, but really, it's something that we get to do. We often tell ourselves it's a burden, but really, it's a privilege and it's an opportunity. How is it an opportunity? I'll be back a little later in the show to tell you more about that. Thanks and appreciation to today's sponsor, Lhasa OMS. Founded way back in 1979, Lhasa OMS is the largest supplier of acupuncture needles and supplies in the United States. As the exclusive importer of the most popular acupuncture needle brands, Sarin and DBC, Lhasa OMS offers unbeatable prices, unmatched service, and terrific selection. Lhasa OMS has a strong commitment to practitioner education and development. Check out their blog for articles that will help you in your clinical practice with everything from clinical techniques to how acupuncturists are responding to disasters and emergencies to dosing CBD to growing your practice with proven methods in our digital age. In addition to their support of Geological, Lhasa OMS hosts webinars, and what's great about those is they do it after clinical hours, so you can tune in after finishing your clinical day. Be sure to sign up for their mailing list if you've not already done so, because they've got all kinds of great deals, and you'll want to find out about those in a timely fashion. Lhasa OMS, supporting your practice and our community with a wide variety of tools and resources. Hey, friends. I've got Tracy Stewart with me today. You know, as with so many of the people I have on this podcast, I've got no idea how I actually came across them. I just know that I come across brilliant people all the time because there's brilliant people in our profession. And she caught my attention because of the work that she has done and the depth that she's gone into with some Korean medicine. Those of you that are regular listeners to the show, you'll know that I've kind of got my teeth into this um, acupuncture thing here lately. It's been a real area of interest for mine. And so I'm delighted to be able to sit down with another one of the tribe here who knows a thing or two about Korean medicine. So Tracy, welcome to Geological. Thank you, Michael. I'm really pleased to be here. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. We've had a little bit of email exchange back and forth, and you've got a glimpse, a view. Actually, it sounds like you've you've got some deep experience into working with some other aspects of, I'm going to call it traditional Korean medicine. Uh, Sa'am is a piece of that. We're not really looking into the Sa'am so much today as some of the other aspects, like some of the uh, medical astrology and the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong in the pronunciation, my Chinese is rough and my Korean is non-existent, satsang? It doesn't have a T in it. That's that's sort of a meditation group in Buddhism, a satsang. Um, this is sasang with no T. Sasang. Yes, that's correct. Okay, sasang. And I don't speak Korean either, so I'm assuming that's correct. Okay. I'd like to start with what nudged you onto the path that's brought you to the practice that you have now. How did you get to where you are? How did it begin? Well, it began with a cardiologist I was treating in my acupuncture practice who came to me for atrial fibrillations, and I could make them go away with acupuncture, but they always came back. And he came in one day and said, I've changed my diet, and I'm not having them anymore. 
And he went to see a Zen master, Master Sunim, who had a, uh, a monastery in Berkeley, who prescribed a diet for him, prescribed a different diet for his wife, who was having problems with allergies and taking stronger and stronger antibiotics to deal with all the secondary infections, and a son who was having febrile seizures. So all of them had improvements in their health to the point of totally eliminating their symptoms. The son no longer had seizures. He no longer had a fib. And his wife was no longer getting chronic sinus infections. And I went, this is interesting. And so I um, started sending all my clients to this guy in Berkeley, you know, this Zen Korean guy in Berkeley named Sunim, which of course is just Korean for monk. Every single person that followed the diet that he recommended for them got better. I've never seen this happen, right? Uh Yeah. And eventually, of course, I did it myself (laughs) and uh, was surprised by, you know, what foods were right for me. I would have never guessed. And the change in my health, things that don't get better as you get older, got better. And I've been following the, the diet recommended for me for quite a few years now. So, yeah, that's how I got started. It's so delightful to practice this medicine because we learn so much from our patients. I mean, we always do. And it's just astounding what can happen sometimes. They come into the clinic, something's really different. And, you know, usually for us, it's not like, oh, that's a weird one-off, but it's like, tell me what happened. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I want to know. (laughs) I want to know about this. Yes. So that started you down the path. What came next? What came next for me was I did this for maybe five or six years. I'm I'm not good at remembering time, but for quite a, a bit of time, I was sending everyone to Sunim because, you know, I was living in the Bay Area at the time. And an opportunity came up to learn how to do this. What had happened was Sunim had gone back to Korea and Jagwan, who was his translator and the only person he'd ever trained to do this was running the the Zen Center. She needed some help and was hiring somebody and training them to do this. And I called her up and said, teach me. And she said, oh, you've sent so many people to us over the years. We, I just have to ask Sunim. And I was admitted into their little class of three. Yeah, that's how I learned. So you're a little bit like Toby in a way. You have somehow found your way into this medicine from Korea that comes down through a monastic tradition. It does. It's a different monastic tradition than than uh, Sa'am, but definitely a monastic tradition, which is, I think, very big in Korea. Uh-huh. So there's more than one. Predominantly, I think... Uh, there's the traveling monks, which is what the uh, background for Sa'am is. And then there's the monastic monks, which is what Sunim, my Sunim was doing. So he's like the comparable to um, a Japanese Zen Roshi. So it's it's a very definite tradition with hierarchy and and place, mm-hmm. which is you know, different from the, the wandering monks. And the medicine is different, too. It's not the same. Talk to us a bit about the medicine. 
Well, one of the things when I le- I had to learn about Sa'am, that, that was new to me too, was that I find that it has some, well, it's its own unique thing, but I found it had some correlations with TCM and the idea of Yang Ming and the correlations pairing of the meridians or what we call in five element officials and five element acupuncture. When Toby was talking about it on your conversation with him, your first conversation with him, it was all new to me until he got to the points. And I went, oh, that's four needle technique, which we use in five element also. When you want to have a powerful and clear transfer to a deficient or an excess organ that's really causing problems. You so would it, it's the needle. same four needle. I mean, it's the, sa- the whole same absolutely, idea. Absolutely the, the same okay. thing. But the, the diagnosis and the way, the reasons why you do it might be slightly different. Uh, five element, we do it almost entirely from pulse reading because we read pulses in more of a Japanese style where you read each of the officials in comparison to each other rather than the, you know, the chi blood level that, and qualities that TCM does. So it, it, it does have some histories in, I think, Chinese acupuncture. Sasang is coming out of a slightly different tradition. It's based on Neo-Confucianism, not that I have ever had those discussions, you know, with Sunim or Jaguan. That's from, you know, research that I did myself on, on the medicine. Instead of having five elements, it's reduced down into the four constitutions because of the idea that we are not in the Taoist tradition just like nature. We have this ability and need to live in culture and society. So the heart is kind of taken out of the, the constitution, not that we don't address what's going on with the heart, but the heart is seen as sacred. It's heart-mind, that aspect of us that is unique to being a human being. So let me just see if I'm following this. This is, this is juicy. Yeah, it's really different. <laughs> it's really different. So you know, with TCM and, and five element for that matter. And, and in fact, you know, you go back to the Chinese classics, we got the five elements, we all, you know, you say five element, we all have kind of an idea what that means. With this, the fire elements taken out, because human beings, while they're a part of nature, there's something about them that makes them a little bit different. And that is the fire element piece. And that is something that is expressed and we work through in relationship in society. You got it. That's exactly correct. Wow. Wow. So the four constitutions are across the the controlling aspect. So the dynamic is either between the liver and the lung or the spleen and the kidney. A hot constitution might be... um, Across the spleen and the the kidney, it would be deficient kidney, excess spleen. But a cold constitution would be excess kidney, deficient spleen. You know, I've got my basic TCM training, relied on it for years. Thanks to Toby Daly, I've now been infected with some of the Sa'am correspondences, which really open up a whole different universe of looking and working with people. And so now I'm hearing something even different. I'm hearing you talk about a hot constitution, and we're talking about spleen and kidney. Let's go into how heat is a part of this picture. 
it's a big part of this picture. The the four constitutions have one organ that's excess, one organ that's deficient, and they either are hot or cold. The hottest constitution is excess spleen. The coldest constitution is excess kidney. And then the liver and the lung are somewhere in between. So if the lung is excess, that's also a hot constitution. And if the liver is excess, that could be either hot or cold. And you have to determine the the situation specifically for the earth element to see whether the person's digestion is hot or cold. Because it's really about the what the digestion is like and what your stomach and spleen do with food, for one thing, but other things as well, how you process everything, really. So this is really, in, in a way, taking a deep look at how that earth element is functioning. Yes, and all the other organs as well. Mm-hmm. But we're looking at it through... Through the central, what's called the central energy and whether, how that is functioning. Do you have, you know, excess hot energy, you know, wherein you could eat raw foods and, you know, break them down? Or are you cold and sluggish and phlegmy, you know? It does relate to how we would, you know, diagnose somebody. But this is looking at the constitutional level. Yeah. Well, when you just said, is there enough heat to break down cold foods? I go, okay. Right. I can see you, that. Right. There it is. When you talk about cold, damp spleen, right? That's a... That's a deficient spleen. Right. That's right. So it does correlate, of course. You know, they're all maps of the territory. The territory doesn't change. Mm-hmm. You know, you just use different maps for navigating the territory. Could you give us a little case example, a little clinical example that would illustrate what we've just started to chew on here? So what's called the so young, so young, which is a lesser young constitution. That's the constitution where the, the spleen is hot and excess and the kidneys are weak and deficient. This creates um, an environment that's generally hot. Even though this is not a predominant, like it's not the most common one of the constitutions in, in the population, it's a really common one that I get for patients. And the reason for that is that because most people need warming foods, and I'm, I'm sure TCM people have seen this in practice, you get a lot of people with cold, damp spleen. The diet is more for warming. You know, the diet of the American, common American diet is very warming. You know, lots of chicken and garlic and onions and peppers, spices. Well, so young people eating a typical American diet won't do very well because they don't do very well with adding more heat to their, you know, their already hot constitution. They're already, they're already running warm. They're already running warm, and it f- affects more than the, their digestion. You know, they they think faster. They tend towards insomnia. You know, all of those things that are signs that you know things are excess and hot. So, an example of a, a person that I had came to me and said, "You know, my my stomach is just upset all the time. I get acid reflux. Nothing agrees me. Everything." 
you know, is disturbing my digestion. And I keep going simpler and simpler. And I'm only eating three foods. And Uh-oh, let me guess. Chicken, peppers, and onions. <laughs> You're very close. <laughs> and she kept saying, they're the blandest foods ever. And I kept going, well, what foods are they exactly? She said, they're just the blandest foods ever. And I said, what are they? And she said, chicken, bananas, and potatoes. Well, those are all warming. So I said, <laughs> I said okay, well, go home and have rice and pork and melons. <laughs> and call me. She called me less than 48 hours later. And she said, I feel so much better. I can't believe the change. And I said, well, you're going to be really happy because there, there are a lot more foods that you can actually eat. So um, she's been doing the diet for maybe 10 years now and um, quite happily has no longer any digestive issues and is sleeping well and all manner of other things that has changed for her. So That's really powerful. I know that in our training, we're told that food is important dietary therapy is important, at least for me, I believe that's true. And yet I don't feel like I got a strong basis in how to use food as therapy other than, than, you know, some of the usual things. Oh, if they're damp, don't let them have greasy food, you know, don't drink ice water, blah, blah, blah. Honestly, I never found the TCM food therapy to be that helpful. And maybe it's just because I don't gravitate toward food. I was always into like, ooh, what can I do with an acupuncture needle? <laughs> well, that's part of it. We are trained in the medicine. But, you know, both Hippocrates and Sanzimiao said, let food be your first medicine. You know, and then, of course, they train medical people. So doctors don't know a whole lot about food therapy and Acupuncturists know some things, especially, you know, there's a bunch of stuff about the temperature of foods and what meridians and organs they go to. There's plenty of information, but we're taught to make sure you're eating a balance of everything, the five tastes, right? Mm -hmm. But the thing is that your plate being balanced is not necessarily balancing you. Right, because you already have an imbalance. Right. We all came in with one. It's part of being a human being. So it's learning what foods to balance what's going on for you internally. And, you know, part of what I've learned how to do is determine what foods are right for you to balance out the imbalance that you came in with. And then to only add medicine on top of that, supplements, herbs, needles, right? It's simple, not simplistic, but I mean, it's just simple, elegant, I guess is a better word when you put it that way. It's basic. Three meals a day. If you're doing three meals a day for, of the wrong foods, you're going to need a lot of medicine to correct that. Yeah. Could you take us for a little spin around the constitutions, a little tour of the constitutions and what we could expect to see? With the people who come in, they go, oh, I got this, I got that. We go, oh, maybe they're, they're this constitution or that constitution. And then what are some simple things that we could do to help rebalance them by uh, maybe prescribing ice cream? <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> I should say that even though what is unique about my system is how we prescribe, because that's what Sunim actually, that's what came to him in in meditation was how to use astrology to prescribe for people. 
But sasang is the common medicine in Korea. Sa'am is, is, it's less common. But you go to an acupuncturist in Korea, they're probably a sasang acupuncturist. So how people determine this is, and there's several books out about this, is body shape, yes, pulse, and certain personality characteristics. There are even questionnaires to determine what your constitution might be. So I will kind of explain the four constitutions from that aspect, because I think it might be useful to, for some of your clients that, you know, don't know how to do Chinese astrology to use that system, is, is that if someone has having, you know, heat symptoms, but they're also, you know, they'll tell you things like, you know, I've never slept very well, even as a, even as a baby, I didn't sleep well, which is something that I would use to describe myself. My my mother said I just didn't sleep. <laughs> uh-huh. One of those hot constitutions. Yes, I'm one of the hot constitutions. They, you tend to be more agitated, more impatient, because, you, you know, you're in a hurry. So personality, body shape, symptoms somewhat, and put you in one of the four constitutions based on those things. So if you're so young, lesser young, you tend to be impatient, have heat symptoms, problems with things like acid reflux, you tend more towards diarrhea than constipation, you know, those sorts of things. If you're so young or so yin, lesser yin, you tend to have more like spleen chi deficiency. You tend to be very patient, not fly off the handle easily. But when you do, you also tend to be not so quick to forgive. You tend to hold on to things. You're cautious because you look at the downside, but you're also finish what you start. So young, to, they start a lot of different things. They make really quick decisions, but they it's not working out. They'll just head off in another direction. That would be a good person for being like an entrepreneur. This is a little aside, but a great story. Time Magazine came out one issue with uh, photographs of all the leaders of the world, and they put their birth dates on them, not the time. So I couldn't do all of them because the time was missing, but I did about 70% of them, and the leaders of the world are mostly so young. By far. And every American president is so young in recent history, except one. And when I tell you who he is, you'll see how he doesn't fit. Jimmy Carter. Oh, yes. <laughs> right? Yes. Yes, and the yes, yes. That Jimmy Carter was that he, you know, was indecisive. Lesser yin people want to, you know, make sure they have all the facts. They don't want to make mistakes because when they make a decision, they're going to stick to it. But lesser young people make decisions quickly and they're sure of themselves because they know that if it's not working out, they'll make another decision. Oh man, you just explained my marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we do pick people who are not like us, right? I mean, if you have one person who's impatient, but can forgive easily and another person who's slow to anger, but hangs on to it. Well, they balance each other out. Yep. Yep. We, we so often are looking for the thing we don't have. Yes. And then for good reason. <laughs> yep. Yep. We're trying, we're trying to learn. They're our greatest teacher. That's right. Yep. That's right. Okay. Okay. So the, the other two constitutions are greater yin and greater yang or tai yin and tai yang. 
And Taeyong is a very unusual constitution. You don't find many of them, somewhat around 5% in the general population. And I've only had one of them. They tend to be um, very sure of themselves, not open to you know outside influences. And they tend to be leaders as well, but more leading in the sense of uh, I'm in charge, <laughs> right? Where so young have more... Um, they tend to be more inclusive of other people's input and just quick in making decisions. But Tai Youngs tend to be, you know, heads of corporations kind of leaders where their word is, you know. They're the king. They're the king, yes. They're more kings than presidents, okay? They're more kings than presidents. Right. Would you say that they might be more narcissistic? <laughs> We're not going there, Michael. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I mean, seriously, because there are, I mean, I have patients. It seems to be a thing like that. Patients come in and they go, well, you know, I had this narcissistic mother. And I mean, I just hear it a lot. I don't know if it's a, a, a new popular thing. Oh, I was, I'm the child of a narcissist or something, but I, I hear it a lot. And, and so it's, it's kind of up for me. So I'm just wondering if the Taeyongs might tend in that direction. I don't think that that's necessarily the case. And um, they certainly are not common. So you wouldn't have a lot of people coming in telling you that their mothers were Tai Young, you know, if they understood how to diagnose them. But a child has needs that no one can meet, right? I don't know if you have children, but certainly you've been one. We all have parents that didn't quite meet our needs. It's not necessarily that the parent, no one else in the world would think our parents were narcissists. But our experience of them might have been that they were so focused on their own needs that they couldn't see ours. Right. Yeah. I yeah. think that's a yeah. common childhood experience, but it's not related to the reality of who the parent was as a person. Mm-hmm. Right. Just mm-hmm. as who they were as a parent. That's all. Right. Which is part of being a person. Well, it's, and it's part of growing up and realizing the world doesn't revolve around you. Right. <laughs> Children are narcissists. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Not in a bad way. They need to be centered on their needs because they can't meet them themselves, right? right? Yeah. Of course. So yeah. so it's a growth phase for us as human beings to be narcissistic yeah. as children and then and and then realize that there's a wider world. Hopefully we grow out of it. Yes. I don't think it's ever really possible to see your parent as a human being not relating to you, you, you know, your relationship with them carries into your adulthood, but you get better at that, at recognizing, oh, they're just people. Hopefully you do. Yeah. Hopefully you do. Laws and good points. And yeah, that's just growing up. Right. Okay. Doesn't mean that you weren't hurt. (laughs) You were. (laughs) So the last constitution is the greater yin constitution. And those people tend to be very, very slow. They they really don't like change. My son was is that constitution. And I remember even as a baby, he just hated any change whatsoever. You know, if he had wet diapers, he he hated that we were going to do a change, you know, any kind of change, even if it was from an uncomfortable situation to a more comfortable situation. He had problems with the aspect of change. And talk about parenting. He had to grow up with a mother who was constantly changing directions. So young. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was challenging for him. Right. My mom just doesn't get me. 
<laughs> yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> yeah, and even when you have all these skills, you know, you still think, oh, this person is really different from me. You know, I think it helps to know that somebody is really different from us. Yes, it does help to know. It really helps to know because sometimes I know for myself, whether it's a personal relationship or whether it's someone I'm working with in clinic, I mean, some people walk in the door and I just know we're going to get along. And other people walk in the door and I go, this is going to be some work. That's correct. Yeah. It's not a good or bad thing. It's just a recognition of we are different animals. I don't, in fact, I may not even be the right practitioner just because we're such different animals. Yeah. And it's good to recognize that. I mean, that's one of the gifts we get from doing what, what we do with people is that we see how not everyone is the same and that we have to adjust ourselves to really address this person where they live. And sometimes that's just very, very difficult because they're so different from us. It really requires us to ramp up our empathy. Yeah. 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 Which is not easy. It's, it's one of our greatest lessons, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. Actually, I've got a follow-up question to that, but I want to see if, we're, if we've finished our quick tour of the constitutions here. I think it's it's very it's a very superficial tour, and you know there are if you go and you know Google these things online, they'll have you know like the greater yin person or the taiyum person has you know excess liver, deficient lung, and they tend to be you know either cold or hot. They can be either way, and what their you know characteristics are: determination, gentleness, you know, all those sorts of things that good and bad on each of the constitutions. So. That, that is available online. I think what is unique about what I do is that I use the Chinese astrology to determine people's constitution. And that is something that only my, my teacher, Sunim and Jaguan, do. We're going to take a short break here. I hope you've been enjoying the podcast conversation so far and already gleaned something useful from it. So back for a moment to this thing about business and how you define it. You know, how you define something profoundly colors your view of it. In Chinese, the word for business is made up of two characters. Sheng yi. Sheng means to create. It's the sheng of the sheng cycle of the five phases. And yi, it means meaning. Get this, it's made up of the characters for sound and heart. It's the same E as the spirit of the spleen, and it's often translated as significance. Sheng Yi, it means business, to do business. But you can also read it as making meaning or creating something of significance. So the next time you have your tail in a knot about, air quotes here, business issues, consider that your task is to create deeper meaning in your work would generate something of significance. You know, I created Geological as I think these conversations do carry something of significance, something of another practitioner's experience that can have an impact and some meaning in your practice. So I've also created the Geologician portion of the website so you can contribute to this endeavor by becoming a member of the podcast. In addition to feeling the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to support a podcast that you love, There are some special goodies available to those who become members of the podcast. For those details, 
head on over to Cheological and click on the Cheologician menu to help keep a little inspiration in the teacup. Thanks for your consideration. And now let's get into the second half of today's show. So we talked earlier how the fire element, the relational element, there's this piece that makes us uniquely human. And that's not in the system because it's like that's something that we do and be in this world. It's not into the diagnostic system. It's not into the diagnostic system. Yes, but we do assess what's going on with the heart. I mean, people have weak heart in their um, constitution. So how would we see that? Yeah, that I don't know how the typical uh, sasang acupuncturist looks at that, probably from pulse and maybe from symptoms. We can see it in the birth chart. I mean, I just did a chart the other day that that has no fire in it. If somebody has no fire in their chart, they may not have, they have tons of liver energy. It's not as weak as if they had no liver energy either, right? Because the, the, you know, the wood is feeding the fire. I did a chart just very recently like this. A person who has, they're actually greater yin, so they have lots and lots of fire and wood in their chart. They have very, very strong liver to the detriment not only of their lung, but every other organ. And the energy isn't moving smoothly because there's no fire. So that all that liver energy has that's normally supposed to support the heart, it's not really happening. And so this person both has a weak heart and all kinds of liver symptoms. We think of excess energy as always being you know, functioning better and better or having elevated levels of iron. This person actually had anemia since they were 13. And it's what was going on was they have a malfunction of the production of liver proteins that are involved in the absorption, assimilation, and utilization of iron. So this is a liver excess that looks like a liver deficiency. Right. Right. Because, you know, really excess of deficiency are just signs that things aren't working properly. You can not only t- always tell whether somebody's excess or deficient based on their symptoms, which is very confusing from a conditional pulse taking. I mean, I'm sure that their liver pulse was excess. I mean, was deficient, but their constitution says it was excess. And that led to the liver not functioning properly. A prime example of of that is I've had several people with asthma and about half of them are excess lung energy and about half of them are deficient lung energy. People whose lung energy is balanced don't have asthma. It's excess or deficient, you might have asthma. You might have lung cancer, you might have allergies, right? But you can't tell from the symptoms necessarily whether someone constitutionally is excess or deficient. And sometimes you won't tell from the pulse either. Well, you, you could tell from the pulse, you know, what the condition was. But um, you know who Peter Ekman is? Yes, I do. Yes. Peter Ekman reads conditional and constitutional pulses. 
Matter of fact, Peter Ackman reads puzzles in more ways than anybody I've ever oh, known. Oh man, yeah, I read his latest I book. Know. It's <laughs> and I, you know, I just look at him and just go, I don't think in this lifetime I could ever do that. So he he reads the constitutional pulse further up the arm, and the conditional pulses at the wrist where we typically raise, and he treats people sasang, and he would describe it as treating their um, like genetic heritage, treating on a constitutional level. He does sasang acupuncture, which I don't do. So. So it's sort of like treating the constitution and con- treating the condition. With the food, we want to treat the constitution. It lays sort of the framework. And that's why I said sometimes you need to add medicine on top of that to treat the condition. And you should treat the condition using the pulses the way you always do, right? right. But you're not treating the constitution. But if you want to use food, you want to focus on the constitution. You want to focus on the constitution. You want to eat generally what will balance out your constitution because it will prevent you from getting conditions. Now, are there some books or other resources out there that have food recommendations for the various constitutions? They do. And as you might imagine, (laughs) they're all a little different. There's um, Peter Ekman's book, uh, The Complete Acupuncturist. There's uh, one called The Compass of Health. Um, one's called your yin yang something or other. So if you look up sasang medicine, um, you'll find there's maybe about five books about it and they're all a little different. And I should say that they're all different from the Chinese category of food, you know, energetics. They're all a little different. That's what I've noticed about this Korean medicine. There are some similarities, <laughs> yes, but there are some significant differences, which at first are confusing as hell. Yes. And then once you kind of dial it in, oh, there's a more three-dimensional picture there. I don't really have any explanations for why that they're different. I just know that um, what I learned from Sunim works. That's really, that's all I can say. And why he, for instance, thinks fish is neutral and um, chicken is warming and I think in the Chinese, fish is cooling and chicken is neutral. I think when you get to the extremities, nobody thinks lamb is cooling. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody thinks chilies are cooling. (laughs) So I think that, that when you're more towards the neutral categories, there's some differences. And also some differences into which organs are affected. But generally, they're close. They're, they're not wildly divergent. They're not wildly divergent. It sounds like where the divergence is with these, with this method, is that you're focused on constitution and the way that you're looking at constitution is different than you would maybe be thinking about it from a more TCM perspective. Yes, absolutely. Or even from, you know, because I'm a five element acupuncturist. Different than that as well. The causative factor, you know. Like I said, maps of the territory. If you want to find a street address, a topographical map is not useful. doesn't mean it's wrong. (laughs) It's just, you know, if I'm doing acupuncture, I'm a five-element acupuncturist. If I'm doing diet, I'm a sasang constitutional practitioner. I, I really love that metaphor. If you're looking for an address, a topographical map, it's not wrong. It's just not helpful. Right. 
Oh, that's so good. If we could all think that way a little bit more, I think we'd stop arguing with ourselves. Stop stop <laughs> arguing with each other so much. Yeah, I'd have to argue with myself, literally, because I'm, you know, in two worlds. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it, but if you recognize that you're in two worlds and you know that this map here is useful for this terrain and this right. map here is useful for this purpose. Yes. Then, then you're fine. You're more than fine. You're you're using the map correctly. Right. Yeah. And and remembering that uh, the territory is vaster than any map could ever explain. <sighs> the joy of our work, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, the frustration too. Right. Uh, yeah. But it's it's totally the joy. Right. And that that this person before you is like no other, even though they're this constitution or this syndrome or this causative factor, they're not like anyone else. And that's our challenge. It's, right? You know, it is a challenge. It's also the fun of it yes. <laughs> because every day we get to learn something a little bit more about not only our own mental maps, but the medicine and just how extraordinary each individual is. That's correct. And that's how, how all of our patients teach us and help us grow. Absolutely. Well, let's delve into some of that Chinese astrology. I've, you know, I've heard about it from time to time. I, I know nothing about it. Can you give us sort of an introduction to Chinese astrology here? Sure. Well, one of the things, you know, because here in the West, we often sort of confuse it with Western astrology, and which I really cannot comment on effectively. But I can tell you this, that Chinese astrology is one of the five arts equal to medicine, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's the same subject matter. It's the Tao. It's yin and yang. It's the rising and falling of yin and yang. It's the four directions. It's the five elements, right? They're all there. It's just applied in a different arena. When you look at a Chinese chart, you've got all the it's Taoist. It's not Sasang. It's it's Taoist. It's like five element acupuncture or TCM. You look at a, a certain chart and you're seeing a picture of nature. So, you know, if it has tons of water and earth, you know, you're looking at a marsh. Mm-hmm. Right? right? If it has no earth but lots of water, you're looking at the tundra. You know, so you start seeing people through the birth chart. As landscapes. As landscapes. This is how sort of Sunim came about this, is looking at it as a landscape. And what does this landscape need to be balanced? You know, if you've got no earth in the chart and you're talking about the tundra, this person is cold. They're extremely cold. And they have very deficient stomach and spleen. So right away, you know, this person is lesser yin. That's the first place you start. But then you start looking at all the different elements and you can see the relationship, you know, through the sort of five element picture, you can see the relationships between the organs and how to balance them out. And that's sort of where you start. You find the constitution. First, you determine if this person is warm or cool. Are they on the liver lung axis? Are they on the spleen kidney access and what's the condition of each organ in relationship to the other so for instance if you see somebody who's has 
lots and lots of water in their chart and very little fire. You know, not only do they have excess kidney energy and they're very cold and tend towards wetness, but they probably should shoot something to protect their heart, right? Because they have no fire in their chart and all this water over-controlling. Sure, and all the cold. All the cold. And so you might add things like to their diet, things like ginseng or even alcohol in medicinal quantities to protect their heart. But they have to get their stomach warm enough first or they won't be able to tolerate those things. So that that's sort of a for instance. So in that situation where the stomach is really cold, you need to warm it up, what should they be eating? Lots and lots of warming foods, garlic, onions, cinnamon, honey, lamb, chicken, turkey. Interestingly, a lot of people that have this extreme cold condition they want to be vegans, not a good oh, diet. For no. Them. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, yeah. Is this just one of those things where, like, there are some people, they're like really good at yoga and they love, 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 love yoga because they're so bendy in the first place? It, yes. It, they just like, I'm so good at this. I'm going to really go for it. Those people should probably be lifting weights. Yes, that's right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it's just, and it's very hard to convince people who are, you know, committed to being vegans that, that it's not a good diet for them. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons they're very, very sick. I know I've seen it. I suspect those that are listening to this conversation right now are kind of nodding their heads and going, oh, yeah, I, I, I know that person. <laughs> yes. I'm the treating other, that person. Because, you know, if you're, if you're a lesser yin person, you're part of the majority of people. You know, maybe 60%, 70% of the people are less. You know, if you just ate the, the typical diet, you probably wouldn't be sick. That many are lesser yin. Yeah, it's, a very, it's very common. That's interesting. And then shoyang comes after that. Probably greater yin is after. No, maybe they're, they're sort of equal. They're sort of equal. Yeah. But we're more likely to get uh, soyang people coming in because they get easily frustrated and they want this fixed. And and they're looking for change, whereas the uh, Shaoyin people... The, the Thai-in people thai don't like... People, right. They don't like change. They're the kind of people that will live with something that isn't working for them for a long, long time until, you know, maybe they've gone too far down a certain road and they won't recover. They're, they're the people that are sick and never go to the doctors. Right. They don't like change. I'd rather hang out with this with the devil <laughs> I know than the devil I don't. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, but the only one that's really rare is the, is the greater young one. That, that one's definitely rare. I, I only have one patient. It was my nephew. And when I told him that his, his lung energy was huge... He thought that was a great thing because, you know, the doctors were always telling him how enormous his lung capacity was, but he actually died of anaphylaxis because he wouldn't do the diet. Matter of fact, the thing that builds the lung more than anything is um, cow dairy and beef. And he would, he would order whenever he went to a restaurant steak. And instead of the baked potato, he'd order cottage cheese. <laughs> it's like, I couldn't get him to do the diet. Couldn't get him to do it. So he never did balance out his system. And there it is again, where we tend to have a predilection for the things that keep us in the state that we're in. Yeah, it's that's not always the case, but certainly people who've gone down a, 
you know, a bad road for them and, and have a mental idea of what's good for them or a craving. It's not coming from uh, paying attention to their body. And people who actually change their diet, they all say to me, you know, these are the foods I really like once they're on the diet. Because mm-hmm. they just feel so good. Because it makes them feel good. Right. You know, and, yeah. and I love hearing you say, well, they should be eating dairy. I mean, so often dairy is considered this evil thing in our <laughs> culture these days. Well, you know, I eat cheese. <laughs> some people need it. <laughs> some people need it. <laughs> Not everybody, but some people need it. And it's important to note that goat and sheep dairy is not neutral in lung building like cow dairy. It's warming. It goes to the spleen. It's a, a completely different animal. And some people need that. And some people shouldn't have either one. Right. Well, you know, I guess that explains then why there are more than a few people that I've run into. They say, well, I can't have dairy unless it's goat. Goat, I can do. Cow, I can't. That's that's somebody who's probably cold, but whose uh, lung energy is, um, is too excess. And so they're right. Goat and, and sheep would help that, and cow would not. Lots of people who are paying attention to what their body is actually telling them do fine. So that brings up an interesting question for me, which is how do you help people to pay attention to their body? Because I find most people don't know how, and increasingly, as people take a little quiz on the internet or they wear a, a Fitbit or a iWatch or whatever where they're basically gamifying their life and they're relying on some outside thing that's measuring what is supposedly vital and important, increasingly I see people being less associated with their body and their feelings and more focused on what this external device is saying this is good or this is bad. How do you help people tune back in to their own selves when everything around us is saying, look at this thing that this electronic sensor is telling you is is right or wrong. Yeah, it's a real uphill battle, isn't it? Our medicine, our Western medicine, doctors have forgotten how to palpate people, how to look at people. They just read their printout of the lab reports and go, well, you're fine. And any sane person could just look at the patient and say, they're not fine. <laughs> There's something wrong. They never take pulses or anything. Well, like you were saying, they often don't even look. They often don't even they look. Don't even, I've had patients that came in for digestive issues. I ask them about their poop, and they go, wow, that's interesting. You're the first person to ask me. And I'm thinking your gastroenterologist doesn't ask you about your poop? Well, no, they just read the uh, colonoscopy. That's it. The lab report. The lab report. Yeah. I think it's a really serious problem. I remind people of doing this. And what I tell them is once you are doing the diet that's right for you for a short period of time, if you're so young, because things change quickly for so young, days even, but for even cold constitutions that take a long time to change, once you start shifting over into feeling more balanced, it's much easier to tell when foods don't agree with you. I think as long as you're eating stuff that's not really agreeing with you, your your body is confused. It's not sending you clear messages. 
that this food is bad for you because you're sick all the time. You feel bad most of the time. You've acclimated to a certain state of dysfunction. Now that's called normal. Yeah, that's that becomes your new normal. Mm-hmm. That being said, we do live in a in a culture that just worships the mind, just adores the mind as if and denigrates the body. Like this is something that we just have to put up with, um, a, a vehicle to move our minds around. But if we could just you know be in our heads all the time and not have to deal with this body, they probably would say, "Oh, fine." It's we're very far from our roots of being connected to ourselves and to the earth. We've lost that somewhere along the way. And I don't see it turning around anytime soon. Well, it sounds like you're already turning it around. I'm doing my part. Sure. I mean, helping people with their digestion, what better way to connect with the earth? It's exactly right. It's something you do every day. Like, you know, if you're healthy, pooping. You know, these are, you know, things that we never talk about. We try not to think about, but these make up, you know, the activities of our lives, actually, the daily maintenance of our bodies. Exactly. I I suspect you have people come in and say this too. They say, well, you know, I think I'm toxic. I need a cleanse. And I know. Yeah. And, and I'll, and I'll look at them and go, does this mean you're not pooping? And and they get really confused. Well, no, I poop. Right. That's usually what it means. It's well, you know, as long as you're pooping, that's called detoxifying and your body's built to do it and you do it every day. Now, if you're not pooping, I'm really concerned. (laughs) Well, you know, I tell people that in Chinese medicine, the large intestine and the lung are paired Mm -hmm. and they have the same job to maintain the balance of water and electrolytes in the body. And nobody cleanses their lungs right? You don't wash them out because you, you know, they have a job to do and they're getting rid of toxins every time you exhale, a toxin that will kill you very shortly if you can't do that. Yep. There it is. Your body does it perfectly all the time. We're built for it. Yes, we are. We are. (laughs) Tracy, I have so many other questions and we're also getting to the moment where we need to wind this down. I still would love to get into some of the astrology. There's a few other things. We had some email conversations. I'd love to get into it with you. What I'd love to do today is start to wind this down. I want to put a bookmark in it, but let's come back together and continue the conversation. How does that sound? I would love to do that. This has been very interesting from my perspective to you know, speak to someone who may not know this system, but has a framework to put it in so that they really grasp it. It's been enjoyable and educational speaking with you. Great. Then before we go, I've just got one more question. This is this is a question that's come to mind recently. I think I'm going to start asking it on, on the podcast because I know I've been asking it of my patients lately. You know, we're in the business of providing health care and helping people with their health and well-being. A question that I think doesn't get asked very often is what is health. I'm curious to get your take on it. Yes, actually, that's a very deep question. It's certainly way more than the lack of disease, which is, you know, where we really start. But I was asked to speak to med techs once, you know, people who are in the medical profession, but are not treating patients. They're, you know, doing billing and things like that. 
And I asked them, what do you want me to talk about in acupuncture? And they said, well, how is it different from Western medicine? I said, well, the biggest difference between Eastern and Western medicine is that you believe that death is a failure of your medicine. And we believe that death is the natural outcome of life and that you can be healed and die. And this idea really comes from the word health itself. It's about wholeness. It's about being who you really are, who you were meant to be. One of the things I've seen, you know, when we talked about every patient is this whole world of uniqueness that we have never seen before, that we will never see again. And the job of understanding your Chinese astrology or getting well is that you can be authentically you. That's, that's what health is, that you have no encumbrances from being your authentic self. And that's, that's the goal of healing. We have a great job, don't we? We have a great job. And like you said, our patients are our greatest teachers. They heal us. We should probably pay them. <laughs> there, there are days when I truly feel like I should be paying them. Yes. No doubt. Exactly. Well, we'll pick that up a little bit later. Tracy, thank you so much for today's conversation. Thank you, Michael. I enjoyed every minute of it. All right, that's it for today's conversation. Hey, if you guys like what you're hearing here, if it's helpful to you, please tell your friends about it. Also, I'm kind of curious. I can look at the download statistics for this podcast, and I see, obviously, there's people in North America that listen to this. There's folks in Australia, Russia, Japan, China. Oh, China, imagine that, China. And I'm wondering where it is that you're listening to this podcast from. So if you don't mind, if you're listening to this right now, pull out your phone or maybe go buy a postcard. Take a picture. Let me see where it is that you listen to Geological from. You can email it to me. The address is michael at geological.com. Or you could send me a postcard. Wow, postcard. That is so old school. I'd love to have that. You'll find the address over on the website. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.